Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's good to see all of you here this morning. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Jason, and it's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. If you're a first-time visitor with us this morning, welcome. We are thankful that the Lord has brought you here to worship with us. I'd like to draw your attention now to the Word of God that is holy and inerrant, as we find it in the 119th Psalm, verses 153 through 160. This is the 20th stanza, and there are 22 stanzas in this psalm, so you can do the math there and realize we are quickly drawing this study to a close. And our hope and prayer is that it's been as encouraging and challenging and enriching to you as it has been to us. But I want to read this stanza for you in its entirety. Psalm 119, verses 153 through 160, reminding you, as I always do, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the living God. So may we tremble before it and receive it from his hand for our good and his glory. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask now for you to teach us the way of your statutes that we might keep them to the end. Give us understanding, we pray, that we might keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. Lead us in the path of your commandments, for we delight in them. By your Spirit, incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, one of the realities that I've observed in pastoral ministry and in my own life and in the life of others is that when we are suffering greatly and for an extended period of time, we are tempted to wonder, tempted to ask ourselves and perhaps others the question, does God really care? Because when you have the weight of suffering, this burden that seems like you can't bear up under it one more second. And you know that the Lord knows all things. You know that he can see your suffering. We're tempted to ask that question, aren't we? Does God really care about what I'm going through? About the suffering that I'm experiencing? It's a question that we're tempted to ask. And every time I find myself tempted to ask that question, my mind drifts to the example of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. You remember Abraham's situation. Abraham was chosen by God graciously, mercifully, and given the promise that it is through his family line 
that the promised one, the Messiah, would come, that through his line, the nations would be blessed. And yet, what was the problem? Though Abraham had this promise, he was advanced in years, and he had no offspring. He had no child of his own. And then the Lord graciously, mercifully, and according to his promise, provides Isaac to Sarah and Abraham. And at the point of Genesis chapter 22, Isaac is now a young man. And so here's Abraham, so excited that he's watching the son grow up, excited for the future. And then what command does the Lord give him? I want you to take your son to the top of Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham does it. Abraham seemingly doesn't even flinch. He says, all right, that's what we're going to do. And as he and his son, Isaac, are ascending Mount Moriah so that he can sacrifice him, you remember, I'm sure you do, that heart-wrenching scene when Isaac says, hey, Dad, we've got the knife, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, but where's the lamb to be offered? And do you remember what Abraham says? He says, the Lord will provide. Literally in the Hebrew, the Lord will see to it. You can imagine how Abraham would have been tempted to question, does the Lord really care about these promises, about my hopes and dreams being put into this promised son that he's given? And yet, how does he respond? He responds with great faith and says, the Lord will see to it. And the Lord did see to it, didn't he? Because Abraham was about to end his son's life and the Lord stops his hand through the angel of the Lord And says, I know now that you trust me. And then the Lord provides a ram. And what does Abraham call that place? He calls it the Lord will provide. Yahweh will see to it. And the author of the book of Genesis tells us, so that even to that day when it was written, it is said, on the mount of the Lord, he shall see to it. And so we see that in the face of potential temptation in the midst of suffering, Abraham responds in great faith saying, the Lord will provide. The Lord will see to it. The Lord will care for me. And I bring up that example, brothers and sisters, because the Lord gets us in our lives to that point where we have that kind of faith and trust in him, even in the midst of suffering. Now, we don't start out there. It takes us a while for the Lord to get us to that point because we've been through this, almost this entire psalm now, and we've seen that David has been at really low points in his life, and Abraham had been at really low points in his life where his faith was very weak. But what we see in this stanza as we draw to the end of Psalm 119 is that the Lord has caused David, his covenant servant, to grow in his faith. So that when this suffering comes at the hands of his adversaries, he says the Lord will see to it. The Lord will provide. And he wants to do the exact same thing in us, brothers and sisters. And so he's given this stanza to that end, to increase our faith and trust in the Lord that he will provide in the midst of our sufferings, even when those temptations come against us. And the way that this stanza does this is by helping us understand three realities Three realities that we must know that the Lord uses to increase our faith and trust in him. First of all, we must know that we have an advocate. The first thing that we must know is our advocate. We're going to see that in verses 153 and verses 154. And what we're going to see is that our advocate is none other than God Almighty himself in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We could have no greater advocate than him. And so he's our advocate. The second truth that we need to understand is our adversaries. 
And we'll see that in verses 155 to 158. We'll see the character of our adversaries, those who come against us. But even more importantly, and amazingly, what we're going to see is the abundance of the Lord's merciful provision as our enemies attack us. That even as they're railing against us, the Lord mercifully sustains us and upholds us and comforts us in the presence of our enemies. And then thirdly, finally, what we're going to see is we're going to see our adoration. We'll see that in verses 159 and 160. That the Lord creates love and sustains love and adoration for him and his word, even as our enemies attack us, even as we suffer at their hands. And so, brothers and sisters, again, my prayer and my confidence is that the Lord will use this stanza and these realities from his word to strengthen our faith so that when our darkest days come, we can say without flinching, the Lord will see to it. The Lord will provide. To that end, let's look first at our advocate in verse 153. Look on my affliction and deliver me. For I do not forget your law. Now what's absolutely fascinating here as a bit of a side note is that word look there in the Hebrew is the exact same word that Abraham cites when he says the Lord will see to it. That's the same Hebrew word. See, look. He's appealing here to the Lord's past covenant faithfulnesses. And not just to God's past covenant faithfulnesses to Abraham, but also to the Israelites as a nation. Because this language is also echoing Exodus language. The time when the Lord brings his people out of their captivity to the cruel Egyptians, their cruel taskmasters. And so if we go back to a place like Exodus chapter 3, we see in verse 7 and verse 9 this exact language used. I'd love to take you there and just dwell on that, but time does not permit You can go look at it later, but verses 7 and 9 in particular of Exodus chapter 3, we see the Lord saying, I've looked upon, I've seen the afflictions of my people, and so that's why I'm drawing near to deliver them. That's why I'm going to take them out of the hands of their enemies and deliver them so that they can worship me in freedom. And so what is David doing here by evoking this kind of imagery and using this kind of language? He's reminding himself. And he's reminding the people of God, even as the Lord was faithful to his covenant promises and provided and saw to it back then, so he will do today as I am one of his covenant people. Because God promises that he will deliver them. He promises that he will deliver his people. David recorded that promise elsewhere in the Psalter. Listen to what he says in Psalm 50 and verse 15. He says, call upon me, this is the Lord speaking through David to David, call upon me in the day of trouble. Now listen to this, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So David's saying, Lord, I know you've always delivered your people. And so I'm turning to you. You are the only one who can deliver me. You are the only one who can give me life. If you notice in this passage, he says that, pleads that three times, pleads it. Give me life, give me life, give me life. Who's the only one that can give him life? The Lord. And so he's turning to him, knowing that he's promised he will deliver him and knowing that he's been faithful in the past and he will be faithful now. But what's fascinating to note here is how David asks God to deliver him. 
How David asks him to deliver him is interesting, and we see it in verse 154. Look there with me. He says, plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. So now he's switched from Exodus language to courtroom language. He's saying, Lord, I want you to defend me against these charges that are being brought against me. I want you to act as my defendant in the courtroom, in the court of law. He's asking the Lord to represent him. And the reason that he has confidence to ask the Lord to do this is because the Lord not only promises that he'll deliver his people, he also promises that he will plead the cause of his people. And David's already seen this in his life. Listen to how David records this elsewhere in Psalm 9, verse 4. David says, For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgments. So David is not only confident the Lord has promised this so he'll do it. He's seen the Lord do it before. And so here he is saying, Lord, I need you to do it again. Now here's the question we have to answer. Why does David need the Lord to be his advocate? Why does he need someone to represent him at all? Well, because David's being accused. He's being accused. He has charges being brought against him by his adversaries, and they want David to die. So David pleads with the Lord to give him life by defending him and by redeeming him. And here's the thing. Who is David's greatest enemy then, and who is our greatest enemy now? Who is our greatest adversary? The scriptures make this abundantly clear. It's Satan, isn't it? Satan's our greatest adversary. As a matter of fact, we know from Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, that he's called what? He's called the accuser of the brethren. He's called the accuser of God's people. Because what does he do? He comes and points out all the ways that we violated God's law. And we have violated God's law, haven't we? And he reminds us that God is just and he must punish sin. And God is just and he must punish sin, mustn't he? And so it's like he drags us before the fury of God's wrath and the fury of the law and says, look at what you deserve. And he accuses us. If you don't believe me, a great example of this, again, that we don't have time to look at, but I encourage you to write it down if you're taking notes or put it in your memory bank and read it later today, is Zechariah chapter 3. In Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah has this vision of Joshua standing before the presence of the Lord in worship. And Zechariah says what he notices as Joshua is standing there in his priestly garb, because he's a high priest, is that his priestly garments are dirty. They're filthy. And so what does that mean? He's not fit to stand before God and worship him. He's unclean. And so what is Satan then doing? He's at his right hand saying, you can't be here. You can't be in the presence of the Lord. Who are you to serve as high priest? He's accusing him. And then this glorious scene happens in Zechariah's vision. Do you remember what happens? The Lord steps in as his advocate and says, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Is this not one of my chosen? And so the Lord rebukes. He's advocating for Joshua here. He's advocating for his people. And then what happens? The Lord says, Bring him pure vestments. Bring him clean priestly garments that he might be clothed in them. Put a fresh turban on his head so that he can stand before me and worship me. What is being pointed out to us here, brothers and sisters, is the incredible reality that though in our sin 
we're unclean. It's like we have dirty clothes on and we can't stand before the king to worship him. And yet we've been given a substitute. The father's advocated for us, given us the son. And he's taken his pure righteousness, his pure robes of acceptability and merit before God, and he's put them on us so we're declared righteous for Jesus' sake. And Jesus has taken our dirty clothes, our unclean vestments, and he's taken them on himself on the cross and paid that penalty in full for the sins that we committed. He was treated as a sinner in our place, and we're treated as Jesus in his place. That's what's happening here in Zechariah chapter three. I encourage you to go read it. It's absolutely incredible. And here's the thing. We know who the father has given to us as an advocate, don't we? It's the son. It's Jesus. John makes this abundantly clear in 1 John chapter two, verse one. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Our desire, John's desire, God's desire is that we do not sin. But, John goes on to say, if anyone does sin, and we do all sin, don't we? We have an advocate with the Father. Who is that advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. The Father has given the Son, and the Son has done all that he has in his person and in his work for us. Because that's the Father advocating for us in the Son so that we can stand before him and worship him. And I love how Thomas Manton, he was a Puritan who wrote a sermon on every single verse in Psalm 119. And commenting on this particular verse, he says, Satan will not be more ready to accuse us than Christ is to plead for us. Is Satan ready and willing to accuse us? Yes, he is. That's why he's called the accuser of the brethren. But who is more ready than him to accuse, to plead for us, to advocate for us, to intercede for us. It's what he's doing even right now. Jesus Christ, God's righteousness to us in our place. He is pleading for us. And so brothers and sisters, we should rejoice in this reality. Because what's the reality? If God has advocated for us and seen to it and provided for our greatest need, so that we can be justified before him. If he's provided in this way, how can we not trust him to advocate and see to it and provide for us in all of these lesser ways? We know that he will. Paul makes this argument in Romans 8. If he's given his son, how will he not also provide for us all good things? And so we need to cling to this. And this reality causes us to trust the Lord when we're suffering, when our adversaries are approaching us to say, along with Abraham, along with David, along with Christ himself, the Lord will see to it. The Lord will provide because he is my advocate. But we not only need to understand our advocate, second of all, we need to understand our adversaries. And David gives us a lengthy description of them. And what pops up in verses 158 through 159 is three descriptions of our adversaries. Three descriptions of our adversaries. So let's look at each one of these. First, let's look at how they are utterly lost in verse 155. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statute. So what's the first description? They're utterly lost. They're far from salvation. And notice why they're far from salvation. 
David says, because they do not seek your statutes. And so what David is saying here is that they are far from salvation because not keeping God's law is indicative of the fact that they hate God. It shows the fact that they have no interest in walking in covenant faithfulness with him and walking in a relationship with him. And so since they are far from the Lord, which their lack of law-keeping reveals, they are therefore far from salvation, because from whom does salvation come? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And so if you're far from him, you're far from salvation. If you don't have him and his word, there's no way for you to be saved. And so David's saying this is the sad reality of his adversaries. And we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but we'd be amiss if we didn't reflect on the reality. Brothers and sisters, in our fallen state, before the Lord saved us, this was our situation. Utterly lost, cut off from God, without hope in the world. But God, in his great mercy, saved us. So this no longer is true of us, but we have been brought near to God. So we should be thankful for that. So the first reality of David's adversaries is that they are utterly lost. Second of all, he says in verse 158, now don't worry, I just went from 155 to 158. You're like, he's skipping verses. Don't worry, we're gonna hit every single one of these verses. We're just gonna jump around. And so hang with me as we do that. Trust me, you'll see why we're gonna do that in just a little bit. But look at verse 158 with me. David says, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Now what's absolutely fascinating and intriguing here is that that language of faithless in the Hebrew is indicating covenant breaking. And so what that's telling us then is that these adversaries of David are those who are within the covenant community of Israel, publicly identify with God's people, live life with them, and yet they hate God, they hate his word, and so they hate David, God's king. And how do we know that? We know that because every time this word pops up, and it pops up a lot in the prophets in particular, like Jeremiah, as a matter of fact, I'd have to go back and look at it, but I'm pretty sure the passages that Mikey read from Jeremiah 3 and 6 this morning, they use this exact word. You saw it translated as traitor or treacherous or betrays. And again and again, this is a word in the Hebrew that the prophets are using to describe the covenant breaking that God's people are participating in. They're whoring themselves, prostituting themselves out to the gods who are no gods at all of the nations. And so they're breaking, violating the covenant. And so what this is showing us is these are those within the covenant community breaking God's covenant by disobeying his law. And how does David say he responds? He says, I am disgusted by their faithlessness. Now that word there, interestingly, can also be translated grieved. And I think both are appropriate. Both are responses that we should have. We should be disgusted that when those, especially within the covenant community of God, disregard his law to their own harm and damnation and in an attempt to not give glory to God. And we're also grieved by it for the exact same reasons. We're disgusted, we're infuriated, and we're grieved, saddened to see them rebel against God to their own destruction. And so, brothers and sisters, the point is, is that as we behold this ourselves, this will be our response. Even as it was the Apostle Paul's response. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. He says, For many of whom I have often told you, 
And now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And so what's David's response? What's Paul's response? What's Christ's response? In his earthly ministry, when he sees his people rebelling, he's grieved and disgusted. And that will be our response as well. So we've seen that they're utterly lost. They're faithless, breaking the covenant. Thirdly, finally, we read in verse 157 that David's adversaries are great. Now you say, wait a minute, verse 157 doesn't say great. Let's read it real quick. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. Now you say, why are you describing them as great if great isn't there in the English, because it is there in the Hebrew, that's why. The same word that you see there in verse 156, great is your mercy, that's the exact same Hebrew word is used in verse 157, for many. We translate it many, but you could just translate it, great are my persecutors and my adversaries. And so what's David saying here? He's saying they're great quantitatively and they're great qualitatively. They're great in number. There's many of them, so they've surrounded me. It's not like I have one vicious enemy. I have so many enemies, and there's only one of me, that they can surround me. They're great in number. They're multitudinous. And they're great qualitatively because they're powerful. From a human perspective, there's more of them than there are me, and they have more power. They have the upper hand over me, O Lord. And so great are my enemies. They're pursuing me. They won't leave me alone. They're dogging me viciously. They want my life. And yet, notice what David says at the end of verse 157. He says, even though this is true, even though from a human perspective they're greater than me, I do not swerve from your testimonies. He's saying, listen, Lord, at times I'm tempted, and it would be way easier to fear them more than I fear you, and just give them a little signal of submission so they'll leave me alone. Maybe not completely, but at least they'll maybe back off a little bit. Maybe if I just give in a little bit and don't obey your law, but do what they want, maybe they'll leave me alone. He says, no, I don't swerve at all. And do you wanna know why he doesn't swerve? We're told in verse 156. So look at verse 156 with me. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Now, I've kind of already tipped my hat to this, but by using the word great both in verse 156 and 157, David is intentionally setting up this contrast. And what he's saying is, though my enemies are great and surrounding me, and from a human perspective, they have the upper hand, Lord, greater still are your mercies. They are greater. Though my enemies surround me and draw near, Lord, your mercies surround me and are even closer because your spirit has taken up residence within me and your mercy is greater than however great their power seems because you are infinite, because you are eternal. You are mercy itself. And so if I have you and you've drawn near to me, all my focus needs to be on the greatness and abundance and power and provision of your mercy rather than my clamoring enemies even though it seems like they're going to contradict and overcome all of your promises. Your mercies are greater. Yes, my enemies are great, but your mercies are greater still. And so even though they surround me, 
Lord, your mercies surround me. And because that's true, I rest in that reality. And so I don't give in to the temptation to swerve to the right or to the left, to give them even one inch because I don't fear them. What can man do to me? If you're for me, who can be against me? And so I don't look for them to save me or for my own hand to save me. I look to you, my merciful God. Give me life. Give me life. Give me life. Preserve me. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us today. The Lord has shown us his great mercy. And how has he done that? We could talk the rest of the day about the ways the Lord has shown us mercies and everybody could stand up and share examples. But two of the best examples of God's abundant mercy towards us, first of all, is in the giving of his son as our advocate. To go back to the first point. He's given us Jesus, and Paul captures the reality of the greatness of God's mercy in his son so beautifully in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Let me read this to you. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but listen to this, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, And renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How has God shown us his great abundant mercy in his Son? He has provided for our greatest need in him. And secondly, God has shown us his great mercy and that though we are now surrounded by our enemies that are formidable of the flesh and the world and the devil and we are attacked by these ruthless enemies without in the world and the devil and within by the flesh, God's mercies abound to us. How does Paul describe God the Father in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1? He calls him the father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. And so since God is mercy itself, he shows us comfort. And what's fascinating is if you go back and read the old dead guys throughout church history, again and again they translate this word mercy as tender mercies, the tender mercies of our God. And you see this all throughout Scripture, that the Lord draws near and is tender in comforting and showing mercy to us. A great example of this is in Isaiah 66, 13. The Lord is speaking to his people through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, and this is what he says. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. The Lord says, I have to accommodate the language here so that you can understand how it is that I draw near and comfort you and show you mercy. And you want the best picture from a human standpoint? You ever seen a mother with her young child comforting them? Drawing them close, pressing them against them, whispering comforting truths into their ear, letting them know, I'm here, I'm here, you're not alone. The Lord says, that's what I do for you. That's the kind of God I am because I am the father of mercies and the God of all comforts. This is what he does when he draws near to us. So brothers and sisters, let us draw near to the fountainhead, the source of all mercy because it all comes from him. And when you're tempted to wonder, does he care? 
answer along with the Apostle Peter that we can cast our cares, our anxieties upon him because we know from his word with absolute certainty that he cares for us. He will mercifully see to it that in the midst of our adversaries, in the midst of our suffering, he will keep us. He will support us. He will comfort us. And we can rejoice in that. And that will cause us to persevere. So we've looked at our advocate. We've looked at our adversaries in God's abundant mercy in the midst of our adversaries. And lastly, let's look at very quickly our adoration. Our adoration. Look at verse 159. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. Now again, we miss this in the English, but that word there, that first word in verse 159, consider, that's the same Hebrew word as look that we translate look in 158 and to go all the way up to verse 153 that shows up there, look. So three times, what are we getting here? We're getting the urgency of David's situation, aren't we? The urgency increases as we get closer and closer to the end of the psalm. So three times he says, Lord, I really need you to look. He's being emphatic here. Three times he says, Lord, I need you to give me life. David's situation is dire here. But notice what he says to look at in verse 159. What does he want the Lord to look and consider? He says, Lord, look and consider how I keep and love your precepts. He's saying, I keep your precepts. And what is that revealing to the Lord? What that's revealing to the Lord, not as if the Lord doesn't already know it, that the reason that David loves God's law is because he loves God himself which makes us have to peel back another layer and say, well, why does David love God? Well, it's because of God's steadfast love, again, at the very end of verse 159. And so what David is getting at here is the reality that John eventually makes abundantly clear for us in the New Testament, in 1 John 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of For our sins. Why does David love God and love his law? It's because God has first entered into a covenant relationship of love with him. The one who is love itself has set his love upon David. And as a result, as a response, David, the Holy Spirit, pours the love of God into our hearts so that we now love God and we love his word. And the proof of that, again, is that David loves God's law. He loves God's word. He's not like David's adversaries who are faithless and turn away from God's commands and do what is ever right in their own eyes. No, he strives to obey God's commands, love God's commands out of gratitude and thankfulness for God's gracious saving of him. And David repents when he does sin and veer off the path of God's commandments. And so he's saying, Lord, look as evidence of my covenant faithfulness to you for my, to my love for your law, which is evidence that I belong to you because you've graciously, lovingly entered into this covenant relationship with me. And so what we see is his adoration of God's law, his love for God's law. He goes on to talk about that and finishes it up in verse 160. Look there with me. David says, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And what David is really saying here is that the reason he loves God, and the reason that he loves God's word, I should say, is because God's word reveals to David God's character. 
that God is true, that God is righteous. And we know that because you see that word there in verse 160, some. In the Hebrew, that can be translated head or source. As a matter of fact, most times in the Old Testament, it's translated head or source again and again and again. And so what's that showing us? Who is the head or the source of God's word? God is. And so whatever is true of God will be true of God's word. And since God is truth, God's word will be true. And since God cannot lie, his word will not lie. And since God is steadfast, his word is steadfast. And since he is eternal and exists forever, his word is eternal and will exist forever. And so what David is saying is, Lord, I love your word because it reveals to me who you are. It reflects your character to me. And so since I love you, I love it. And this is another example, brothers and sisters, of the Lord's abundant provision to David and to his people. Because what does the Lord do in his word? He draws near to us. And it's revealed to us how he advocates for us. And it's revealed to us how he faithfully protects his people and causes them to endure in the face of suffering before their enemies. And how does the Lord do that? He sustains them by meeting with them and fellowshipping with them in his word. And so we will love it. We will adore it if we love him and we adore him. And he will use this means to provide for us, to sustain us. It's our food on this spiritual journey that we're on in this life. He sustains us through his word. And so what do we see again and again at every point, brothers and sisters? The Lord will see to it as our advocate. Some of the gospel see to it. He'll provide mercy and comfort in the face of the flesh and the world and the devil. And he will reveal to us what we need to know in his word. He has seen to it and he has provided for us. And so because that's true, we know that we will endure. We know that we will persevere because of who he is and because of how he sustains us, even in the midst of suffering, so that we can know with absolute certainty, though it does not seem like it from a human perspective, that the Lord cares. I know from his word that he cares for me, and so I will cast my cares again and again and again upon him. And as we do that and rest in these truths together, we can sing, as we're about to in a few moments, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do acknowledge that you are the God of all mercies, the God of all comfort. And we're thankful for that supreme comfort that you've spoken to us in your Son, He's advocated for us. He's rebuked Satan, silenced his accusations because of what Jesus did in his life and in his death on the cross so that we're clothed in his righteous robes and able to draw near to you. And we're thankful that though our enemies continue to pursue us, you draw near to us in mercy and you comfort us. Open our eyes to see the many ways that you do that, Lord, in your word and through the promises of your Son. And we pray, Lord, that we would grow more and more in our adoration and love of your word, understanding that you sustain us by your spirit through it until the end. Armed with these realities and trusting in you, we pray that you would send us to the farthest corners of the earth to make your gospel known, that you might be exalted. 
We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.